You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dalton Polhill, who is using Django and Python to build an e-commerce site that lets folks purchase online courses. Dalton, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here to talk to you guys and you know, share some of my experience. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the site that we're going to go over today? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm actually a recent graduate of university. And so within the last six months or so, I decided to start doing some freelance work. Um, and I found a client who basically wanted to offer up the courses that he had been writing already um, for money. And so uh, in his spare time, he was writing all of these courses and content and tutorials and walkthroughs and things. And so he basically decided that it was time to make some money out of it. And uh, he needed some way to allow people to actually log in and sign up with an email address so that they could be part of a newsletter and then uh, allow for payment to be passed and to give access to, um, you know, restricted content. Uh, so if you haven't paid for the course, you can't see the material and all of that sort of stuff. So my client is technical. Uh, he writes code. He understands code. He likes to teach code. However, he doesn't have the time because he has a full-time job and everything else uh, to build out a site like this. So he hired me to do that. And it was a, a huge learning experience for me. And uh, I hope that I can pass off some of my knowledge onto the listeners. Very cool. Now, when you say course material, is this like a video course or a text or something else? So for the most part right now, it's all text-based. Uh, he goes through a lot of like walkthroughs and introductions and basically on like how to get started in programming. So a little bit of life stuff, um, how to learn how to code, how to learn how to learn, you know, like how to learn how to Google things correctly and how to learn reading Stack Overflows properly and those sorts of things. So most of it right now is text-based. However, he is planning on moving to a more video-based um, learning site. So that'll be exciting as well. Yeah, for sure. So how long uh, were you developing this site for? In order to get it from zero to in production and uh, an initial sale, it was about two and a half months. Well, that's actually pretty fast from end to end. Yeah, it was, it was all because of the power of Django. <laughs> so what motivated you to use Django in the end? Uh, interestingly enough, I've, I've done some web development um, and most of it was all with PHP. And so when I came across this job and, and I started thinking about how to do it, I was like, you know, I really don't want to start from scratch with building a website with PHP. Um, I'd done it once before. I hated it the whole time. And so I had heard about these things called frameworks. And so I decided to do a lot more research into what is a web framework? How do they work? Why is everybody talking about it? And I basically came across these two web frameworks. One was Django and the other one was Larval, which is based on PHP. And they seem to be the most popular. And so I started looking into both of them and I thought, well, I didn't really enjoy coding in PHP and I have a lot of experience with Python. And since Django is based on Python, maybe it'll be easier and I'll be able to complete this job faster. Uh, and then when I started learning more and more about Django, I was just blown away at, at how much it does for you and how powerful it is. So after reading about it enough, I was so excited just to like dive in and get used to it. So 
I just, I jumped right in. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's very cool to hear. It almost seems like, I guess, I wouldn't say like people don't learn from history, but it's like, I remember going through the same path as you did in like the early 2000s. So just writing straight up PHP, no frameworks, and then being like, whoa, you know, these are frameworks that exist. Like, you know, it took a couple of years to get there because not too much was around then. But it's kind of cool to hear that like that same flow still happens even today. Yeah, for sure. I had I had done some web development, and I think a lot of it is is based on your experience too. Because um, my experience with PHP was that I had a, a mentor. I was working a co op job, and I had a mentor, and it was just a terrible experience because they didn't want to help me learn the basics because they were so experienced. So at that time in my career, I wasn't great at googling things and figuring them figuring them out myself. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was rough and it leaves a sour taste in your mouth for a certain language or framework or whatever you're working with. So I definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. So going back to the Django app over here, are you using some features of Django that really helped you build this app quickly? Like are you using the admin or no? Yeah, absolutely. So the admin is one of the biggest things that, that really helped me out with building this because my client wanted a way to be able to upload those courses very easily and then to be able to manage you know if anything goes wrong in the back end with a user or them like losing their password or anything like that he wanted to be able to handle that himself and not have to you know reach back out to me and try to get me to go in and fix it and anything like that so i was i was looking around uh, the internet and everyone kept talking about this admin like django admin django admin and i'm like oh is this an app that you install and so when I built the project, just originally opening up the project, I saw that this admin page is already there. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And so I started poking around in it and, I, and it like copies all of the models over and you can manipulate the models right away. And instantly that light bulb went off and I said, well, this is going to be the easiest way to have my client be able to upload those courses because a course is just going to be in one of those models and all he has to do is add a new one. So it worked out really well and the admin page really does a lot of the work for you. Yeah, that's a very, very cool feature. And it's always nice, right, to have clients who are technical too, because it's like, it's an easier sell to give someone, a, you know, like an unmodified Django admin if they're already a developer. Like it doesn't need to be pretty, it just needs to work kind of. Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of the thing too with uh, this client is I, I kept saying to him, you know, this is not public. So so don't worry about the way that it looks because I'm, I haven't changed any of the CSS or anything. So it looks very plain. I don't think anyone would really like to publish that admin page to the public because it looks very 1990s computer website-ish. <laughs> so I kept telling him, like, don't worry about that. You know, this is this is private to you only. And he was like, oh, no, I get that. That's that's no problem. And so the more that I spoke to my client, the more I realized, oh, he, he is technically skilled. And, you know, he's more hiring me based on he doesn't have the time to do this rather than he can't do this. Yeah, very cool to hear. So going back to Django itself and, you know, how it can maybe help you build things faster or organize things a little bit nicer, are you using other features of Django, like Django apps? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was looking into Django apps and it's definitely something that can really help you. Um, in terms of this project, uh, it's only in one app because it's so small. But uh, yeah, I think organizing it in various apps can be so beneficial and keeping things separate and it helps so much with unit testing and everything like that. So apps are really helpful. Right. Kind of interesting to hear you say that that course platform is is small because I also am building my own as well. And I totally get why someone would outsource that to begin with because it's a heck of a, a 
project to take on. But like when I think of my course platform, I'm thinking like, you know, you know, there's a concept of like a course and there's sections and there's lessons and there's videos and there's transcripts and there's promotions and there's banners and there's discounts. And it's like all these things are piling up to be like months of work. Like, did you not encounter half of those in your project or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the interesting part about the way that my client has designed this was that he already writes these courses. And so he's been writing these courses for other sources um, and basically the way that he submits them to the other sources is in markdown files. And so he has these markdown files written and he's been, you know, he's written markdown files for other sources. He's written markdown files for his own website and that sort of thing. And so he said, I want to be able to take the courses that I already have pre-written that haven't been uploaded anywhere else yet. And I've just written them for myself because I know I want to start selling them and I want to flip those in and just start selling them. And so I kind of thought, you know, how complex does it need to be when you have a single data source? So there's no video along with text and and along with questions and along with like a quiz. So it's not quite as complex as things like Udemy or anything like that, where it's got multiple media sources as part of the text, uh, as part of the course. And so I thought, what if we just streamline this? and have it generic. And so we have like course models that are generic and can hold any kind of data. However, right now, all it needs to hold is a markdown file. And so the way that I have it set up is that when you go into the course, it brings you to the index page of that markdown file set. And then the links inside of that will take you to the next pages. And it basically just keeps rendering markdown files over and over again to seem like you're going through this whole long process of different parts of the course. However, it's all one media source. So it, it really streamlined the process. And once I had it up and running, he started tweaking it and adding in, like you were saying, discounts and promotions and that sort of thing. And that came down to really just changing a few small things. He would go into the admin page and update the price and then change on the sales page you know, the HTML button basically changed the the dollar sign value and put a banner up across the top saying, hey, there's a sale and things like that. So it was really interesting. Right. So can you maybe rattle off a couple of model names that you might have in there? Like, do you have the concept of like sections and like a markdown lesson is part of like a lesson or something like that or no? Yeah. So basically all of the, the markdown files just go into a document model. And then a course model has uh, a foreign key to documents. And so it's a set of documents all attached to a single course. And then basically the way he has it set up is each document is its own page. And that's kind of like a section of the course, but it's not like defined as that. There's no models for sections or anything like that. It's really just, hey, here's step one in this walkthrough or tutorial and then go to the next page is step two and and so on. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, it kind of sounds like maybe this app, since you said it's sort of kind of small, maybe, is it is it a single monolithic app or do you have some, you know, broken out services here and there? Yeah, right now it's just a single monolithic. Um, realistically, I could see it growing um, into something that wouldn't make sense to be a monolithic um, and, and it'd be beneficial to break it out. But right now, the only outside service that is used is really just Stripe, which is for payment. Right. But the app itself, it's just one Git repo with, you know, some amount of code in there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
maybe can you go into like maybe like how much code there is roughly lines of code give or take yeah so i actually ran a count because i was curious there's 1,145 lines of Python code, and that's across just 23 files. God, I'm so jealous. Like, that is such a small amount of code for getting something, like, actually up there shipped and, like, a full, you know, billing platform to purchase protected stuff. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because the way that he's he's done it up until this point before me is was amazing. Like, the more that I talked to my client and learning about his business model was really just putting content out there for free to get his name out there and then increasing the traffic that was coming to his site. And now he has this very simplistic website that sells content like he's been doing this whole time is really just putting content out there. And now he's just got a dollar value return coming back. So yeah, he's, he's done really well. Very cool. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that. Are you able to share like what type of traffic figures he's getting to the course? Like not revenue numbers, but like, you know, number of visitors or like how, how many people, you know, went to this course, etc. As of right now, there isn't enough stats to really know. Um, and I'm not really in on the loop for that. However, um, I was still, I still had a, a login to the Stripe account in order to set up the API keys. And within 24 hours of putting the site live we had made the first sale nice yeah so, I, so at least you know it works <laughs> exactly like that was the the best uh production test i could have asked for <laughs> yeah for whatever reason like even if i'm working on client work or my own work it's like that one point where you know you're on the hook to make sure that you know what people buy actually works and the whole you know flow isn't broken at some point like that's a very stressful thing to me even though i've done it like probably i don't know like 15 or 20 different sites over the years did you find the same thing for you or no? Yeah, for sure. It was definitely stressful. I, I had him test it a few times, just like running it through the, the test uh, Stripe API. And then we did a live test. And so he, he bought one of his own courses and it worked. And we were like, okay, that's great that it worked. But, you know, we still have to test it with the public. Like it, it's so stressful to go from internal testing to now live testing. Yeah, and it's always weird when you have to pull the trigger on like a live real credit card. It's like, yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you get hit for that, what, 2.9% plus 30 cents for Stripe or whatever. But yeah, it's an interesting dilemma to have. Yeah, absolutely. The the Stripe, I, I thought Stripe was interesting. Um, he has used it many times. And so originally when we were talking about the project, I was like, really the only uh, online payment platform that I know of is PayPal. Um, why don't you use PayPal? And he was like, oh, like, I've never really thought about using PayPal. I've always used Stripe. And so that was really interesting for me because if it was up to me, I'd, I would have just gone with what I know and I wouldn't have looked around. And uh, I think that was something that really opened my eyes. Like, instead of just going with what you know, you should look around and try and compare things because, yeah, there is a fee associated with that. And if Stripe's fee is less, then you want to go for that one. Right. Well, on the bright side, he's probably going to contact you at some point and be like, hey, you know, I have some customers who want to pay with PayPal. Go ahead and integrate that too. And then you can support both. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely interesting. And I was looking around too, just out of curiosity. And Django does have a few libraries uh, out there, open source libraries, of course, that are uh, um, integrations for various different payment sites. And you can integrate PayPal and Stripe with just basically plugging in an API key into the library and then it just works. And I thought that was amazing. And so if he does come back to me and ask for PayPal, I might look into using a library like that. 
Right. So which library did you end up using for Stripe? I just used their API, <laughs> the Django Stripe uh, library. They have a, a Python one. So I was just using that. And they uh, actually build a JavaScript purchase um, icon. So basically, when you, you load the JavaScript right onto the HTML and you have a username and the credit card and credit card number and uh, your CVC and stuff like that, and you press the buy button and it sends a JavaScript uh, request over to their platform and it goes right into your account based on your API key. And it was very easy, to be honest. Like I was most uh, worried about implementing the payment because it's something that you really have to worry about for security reasons and, you know, you, do, you want it to look nice. So putting that in there, I was really nervous, but their API was amazing. Yeah, no, Stripe's API is really nice. So did you implement this using the new SCA APIs, like payment intents or no? No, I read about those, but I felt like it was a little too much than, than what was needed. And I had it working in a test environment with just the JavaScript requests. And I was like, hey, if it works, <laughs> it works. Yeah, no, that's definitely a tricky one to go by because like the payment intense API, it does make Stripe a little bit more complicated to use. And what I mean by a little bit is a lot of it, <laughs> uh, but at least their docs are pretty good. Yeah, I thought their documentation was really good. I mean, I'm, I've am i been using uh, Amazon Web Services for years now, and I find that their documentation is getting worse by the year. So every time I come across documentation that's really well written, I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it's always tricky, right? When you deal with a service that just keeps growing over time, yeah, it just becomes harder to document that stuff. It's like, you know, it's easy to explain something when there's like two API endpoints, but when you have like, you know, like 150 different services, each with like 100 API endpoints, it's like, how do you even organize that much info? Exactly. And the problem is they don't deprecate their documentation properly either. When things are no longer valid and you you find that in a Google search and then you're trying it and then you find in, in, in another Google search, yeah, they deprecated that. Uh, don't use that anymore. You just spent an hour trying to use it. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit and maybe talk about your app a little bit more on the backend and front end. Do you have this just using Django templates with a little bit of JavaScript or is this more of like an API backend with uh, you know like a JavaScript heavy library on the front end? Yeah, so I'm using mostly the templates with a little bit of JavaScript sprinkled in there. Um, that was really one of the things that I loved about Django so much when I first started using it was you didn't have to write a whole whack load of HTML from scratch. Right. I think whack load is the first time I've ever heard that term. Nice one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I think of it. You know, it's it's just so much HTML. And I mean, uh, it's just horrible to write. And then you have to worry about styling it. Like I as much as I do a lot of web development, it's so much work and starting it from scratch. I never want to do it again. So I'm so thankful that, you know, things like Django even exist. Like frameworks are just so powerful. And, and if you haven't used one before, I, I highly recommend just pick one and start learning it. Right. Now, going back to your app, you mentioned that uh, he uploads Markdown files. Is that handled through like an actual file uploader? Or is it more just like pasting Markdown into a text area? We actually have uh, files being uploaded, and that's something that's built into Django as well. Um, and it is right through the admin page. Okay. So is that just using, so I'm actually not really a Django developer. I know a little bit based on, you know, speaking to other people, but are you using the built-in like Django storage, uh, I guess you can say option of the framework? 
Yeah, sort of. So when you design the models, you can design like what type of information they hold. So uh, in the model, we have, you know, like a primary key would be like the the uh, ID and, and that one's kind of auto generated by Django. So you never have to worry about it. Um, so basically in the courses, we have the course name, which is just a varchar. Uh, we have the course price, which would be like a decimal. And then it has foreign keys to these documents. And so those documents are actually of type file. And so Django knows that you're going to be storing a file there. Now, what you can do is you can actually set in your configurations where those files are stored on the server. And then Django just knows to go and fetch them from there. Nice. So do you have any like features built into the platform that might make it a little bit nicer for the end user, like counting the number of words in one of those uh, markdown lessons to be like, oh, you know, an estimated of like 15 minute read time or something like that? No, but that's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be kind of cool to have that. Yeah, that would be excellent. Also, what about things like searching? Is there an ability to, to kind of search a lesson for words? No, but that's also a really good idea. <laughs> Damn, I feel like I'm like tearing down your system. Like it's missing this and it's missing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's so interesting when you build something like this, especially building it from scratch because you, you know, you you have to build the core first. And so you spend so much time learning. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand how, you know, how does the model talk to the front end? And then how does the front end get rendered? And how do you write a template? And how do I populate that data? And so you spend so much time building all that core stuff and then you get it working and you're like, wow, this is so cool. And you're like, wait, I want to add this. Wait, I want to add that. Wait, I want to add this as well. And then you kind of have to go back and fix up what you've done. So being able to add those sort of, those sort of things, you'd have to edit your models to then reflect that. And so it, it's something you really learn when you go through development processes like this is how to plan ahead and think, you know, hey, if I want to search this, what am I going to need now? Right. Well, what I think you did was a fantastic thing, though, right? It's like you got the thing actually running in production, accepting money. It's online live. You know, people are taking the courses and, you know, going through that versus it never being shipped at all. And you're just adding feature after feature after feature and it never gets done. And uh, in case you couldn't tell, like, yeah, I'm, just, I'm speaking from experience here on my platform. It's like, I mean, I have another solution that's capable of hosting it. So it's like not a burning desire to finish it. But yeah, it's so easy to get trapped into that loop of, I'm just going to add one more thing, but also this other thing as well. Exactly. And it, it, it is. I mean, that's why big companies like Microsoft and Google hire a lot of project managers to then, you know, manage the stream and decide what ends up getting put into a release or not. And that's why you get a lot of frustrated people you know, wondering why does Netflix still not have a, a star rating system where you can actually put in a review about a movie? What is taking them so long to put in that feature? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely so true. Now, going back to your tech stack, do you use other things on the back end as well, such as like Redis and Celery, or is it just like a like a Postgres back database and that's it? Actually, I'm using just a, an SQLite database. So Django will ship uh, with an SQLite database default. And so when I first saw that, I was like, oh, there's no way that's going to be powerful enough. You know, what if we get a lot of traffic coming to the site? Those sorts of things. So I looked up the uh, specs on SQLite, and it's actually really impressive for something that requires no effort to put together. Yeah, so SQLite 
databases can actually handle hundreds of thousands of requests in very short amount of times. And it's really impressive because it's not, you know, it's not enterprise level software. And even I've only used MySQL before because I thought it was the best. I thought MySQL out there or MySQL was the best database system out there. However, coming across SQL Lite, I was really intrigued at how small and how powerful it was. So I thought, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. I've done a lot of testing in the production environment, and it seems to be holding up. So I'm really impressed with it. However, Django also gives you the option to swap out databases. It's not super simple, but it is possible. So if we ever do run into issues where the database ends up being the bottleneck, we'll definitely be moving over to something a little more powerful, probably MySQL, just because I have experience with it. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to see that uh, using SQLite there. Because, yeah, I mean, I haven't worked with that database in quite some time, but I remember the horror stories on the internet of just people being, well, they're not really horror stories, but, you know, there are subtle differences between using SQLite and something like Postgres or MySQL. Like if you wanted to pick out, I don't know, like a random row from a table or something like that, like there's a specific way to do that in uh, Postgres, but I don't know if that same exact way would work with SQLite. So like if you use the Django RM to do that, like I don't know if it knows to differentiate the two. For sure. And I'm not sure either. And and that's the whole thing. Like you kind of have to understand your use case. And for me, the use case was really just being able to retrieve data that, you know, was all grouped together. Like those documents are all going to be attached to one course. So 90% of the queries uh, running on this website are going to be, hey, I'm looking at course number XYZ. Give me the documents that have to do with that course. And that's really it. And then the other 10% is going to be administrative stuff. So either updating, um, uploading new courses, or logging in and out and that sort of thing. So realistically, if we were to do something a lot more complicated that included a lot more database activity, then it, it might not be a good solution to use SQLite. Right. So going back to what you just said before about how you query the database, would you mind going into detail about, you know, how you have permissions set up for users? Like what happens when they buy a course? Like how does that, how does that get modeled at the database level? Yeah, for sure. So um, Django has this amazing idea of you have a model that is for your user. So there's actually a built-in authentication model that you can use over and over again called the user model. I know, unique name. And so that model will handle the username and the password. That way, as the developer, you never really have to worry about keeping a secure password, salting and hashing and all of that correctness. Django will handle the passwords for you. So you don't really have to worry. So that takes a huge load of work off of you. So the idea was that you can use this user model but really all it's going to get you is authentication. So it's going to allow you to have your users log in and out. And that's really it. If you want to put stuff on top of that in the idea of um, holding more information that has to do about the user, but has nothing to do with authentication, what you would want to do is create a profile model. That's what they call almost a wrapper around that user. And basically it's just a model that has a one-to-one -one relationship with that user model. And so now you have an authentication model 
that's linked to another model that can hold any information you want about your users. So the, the famous case that they use is employees. If you have employees in your company, you want them to be able to authenticate into your system. However, things like home address or phone number or payroll number or something like that, that has nothing to do with authentication. So you don't want to add it into the user model. You want to add it into a profile model. So in my website, we have a profile model. And inside that profile model, that keeps track of what courses you've paid for and what courses you're enrolled in, basically. And it holds a list of all the courses you're enrolled in. And so when you come to the site, you have to log in. And then when you log in, it tells you, hey, here are all the courses you are enrolled in. Here are the courses that are available that you're not enrolled in. And when you try to click on a course that you're not enrolled in, we can check those permissions and deny you access. Okay. So do you have that enrollment set up as like, like an array field in that profile table? Or do you have like a separate enrollment table that may have like, you know, multiple entries for one user if they're enrolled into many things? Right now it's an array field. And so it just lists them out, which is convenient at the moment. However, we have to be weary of how quickly the number of courses grows. So we don't want to be doing that when we have a thousand courses. But at the moment, I think there's about seven courses on the website, if I'm correct. And so you don't really have to worry about it. However, as the, the website scales, we'll have to refactor for sure. Right. Okay. So switching gears now back to your tech stack, do you happen to use Docker any at some point in development or production or no? Um, I have in the past. I've used it so much, and I think it's one of the best tools to use for development. However, naively, this time around, I did not. And the reason I didn't was because Python has virtual environments. And so I was like, oh, you know, Python's got a virtual environment. I'll just spin one of those up. I'll throw my Django project in there and I'll get rolling. And I started rolling and uh, I went down the, the highway of getting this thing going and installing other libraries and apps and just things to get, you know, small pieces of the project working. And then I went to actually push this project to production. And man, do I wish I was using a Docker container. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> exactly. I completely forgot half of the things that I had installed. I wasn't keeping an up-to-date requirements.txt. And that was a huge pitfall in what I did. And so I had to basically go back and I was like, okay, I know that Django was installed. So let's install that on the server throw the project in there and run it and just see what it complains about. And then just slowly add in more and more of the, of the other Django libraries that I was using. And so <laughs> it was annoying. And, you know, it was one of those things that you just learn the hard way. Yeah. So how much time do you think you spent getting that up and running on uh, whatever platform that you deployed this to? Um, I think it was about three days. It took me to get it from spinning up the, the cloud server initially, and then actually getting it to run. Wow. Yeah, that is quite some time. I mean, it is what it is if you, if you have to go through that, like basically error by error until it works. But uh, yeah, Docker, oh man, like Docker Compose up and you're basically done if it's a one server to play. Yeah, for sure. And and that's what I mean. Like I've used Docker before, so I, I understand how powerful it is, but I was just so naive and thinking that, hey, Python has virtual environments. I'm just going to use that so that I can get started and, and go quickly. And that was a, a big mistake. 
Right. So going back to your tech stack still here, do you have something sitting in front of your Django app server, like Unicorn or UWSGI? Do you have a, like Nginx sitting in front of either of those? Uh, I have it on running with P, uh, P, uh, Apache. Okay. Do you want to go into maybe details on like what led you to use that in the end? Not saying it's a bad choice, but like, did you compare it to other stuff? I compared it a little bit to Nginx and the biggest reason that I chose Apache was a, I have previous experience with it. So I, I kind of understand it a little more. I'm definitely not an expert in Apache whatsoever. However, I kind of understand the language that it uses and the things that it talks about. Um, and then the other thing was I just found a really good tutorial on how to launch a Django project using Apache. And so I was kind of reading through it and it had very step-by-step instructions. It had code samples and it even had things like when I did this, it worked fine. However, the newest release of Apache will cause this issue. So keep that in mind and to fix that issue, do this. And I thought this is just such a well-written document that I'm going to go with Apache. <laughs> yeah, I know it. It's definitely very helpful when you can find something you can follow along with and it actually works. Like it could be the biggest difference between, yeah, choosing that tech for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So with that Apache setup, do you use something like, what would it be called? Like mod whiskey maybe? Um, no. Uh, the So the weird thing about um, Django is basically in order for the web server to talk to Django, it has to go through this ASGI program. And basically that's like an interpreter between a web server and Django. And so that was the weirdest thing about launching it in Apache because Normally, when you have Apache running with like PHP or even just static files, you basically just request the file and then it, it'll throw the file at the user. However, with um, Django, you have to have Apache then go talk to this extra service and then that service renders everything that has to do with the Django project itself and will send those HTTP responses back to the user. So that was kind of a strange setup, and I, I still don't really understand it fully. However, there are a lot of good tutorials online that will walk you through it. Right. Yeah, that doesn't sound too different than how Nginx would have it set up, where basically it's acting as a, like a reverse proxy. Like it sits in front of your you know, Django app server and just sends uh, the necessary traffic back to it when it needs to. Like you know, if you're serving a CSS file or you know, some type of static file, no need to contact the Django backend for that. You know, Apache or Nginx can just serve it directly. Is that how you have that also set up or now? Yeah, for sure. So with static files, it, it, it's just so much more efficient. You know, Apache can cache all of those files and just respond them very quickly. So it works out well. Right. Do you also have that handling your SSL certs too? Yeah. So I had I, I had used CertBot actually to set up SSL. Um, and I've used it a few times and it always works out really well. Sometimes it can be a pain to get it set up if you don't have the correct permissions set up on your cloud server. Um, and so once you get that figured out and ironed out, it takes a few runs at it. Um, but once you have that set up, it's great. I mean, it's free and it does auto renewals every time that your certificates are actually going to expire. Right. There's not much to not like about that, right? It's like run the command and you're done after you slight configuration. Exactly. It's so great. So earlier you talked about, you know, you weren't a huge fan of uh, AWS's documentation. I mean, there was some like pain in those words. Are you actually using AWS to host the site or no? Yes, absolutely. I, I stand by AWS completely. I've used it for four or five years now, and 
I've loved it. Um, the biggest thing that I find annoying about AWS is that it is very much its own ecosystem. If you're trained in AWS and you learn AWS from the start, then you understand what's going on because they have their own words for things. It's very hard to learn about cloud development in let's say Azure and then come over to AWS and really pick up on it very quickly. You kind of have to learn their nomenclature. And, and I find that very annoying because it's hard for beginners to get caught up. Yeah, for sure. So do you have any examples of like maybe some terms or AWS services that kind of caught you up? Yeah. So, I mean, just like Lambda functions and S3 buckets, like how, why would you call it a bucket? <laughs> it makes sense when you have somebody explain it to you. The way that I was explained was, you know, it's a bucket. You can throw anything you want in it. It doesn't matter. You can serve any kind of files from this bucket, but why would you not continue to use the same nomenclature that the rest of the industry uses and everybody calls those containers oh god if they knew the containers that would be the end of the world right about now well because you know s3 came about way before docker containers did and i don't know about lxc containers probably after those existed but yeah containers are used all over the place yeah for sure and and now it would just completely flip the scales so it was interesting because i learned aws before and so I kind of just caught on to the word that they used for different services. And then I went over and was using Azure for a little while. And I was like, these titles make so much more sense. Like to a beginner or something, it would just be intuitive that just reading what the service was called, you know what it does. Yeah. So I know with, with Google, there's like Google functions, but you know, to me, that makes sense. I know Lambda is technically a function, but like I never took, you know, calculus or some crazy higher level math, like, you know, you don't know what a Lambda is unless you kind of know what a Lambda is already. Right, exactly. And and for myself, when I started using AWS, I didn't even know Lambdas were functions to be used in code. Like I had never done any kind of Lambda coding. Like when I first got introduced to Lambdas, it was JavaScript. And that was like fourth year university. And so being called Lambda functions, I, I didn't really know what this Lambda word was. So I just kind of went with it. But then, yeah, once you know what it's called in, in real life and it makes sense, but you know, Azure's wording is much better. <laughs> yeah. So going back to your AWS setup here, how do you have this uh, all set up? Is it like a single EC2 instance or are you using one of their managed services? Yeah. So I have this running on a single EC2 instance. Um, and yeah, that's really it. We have the domain is through route 53 and the DNS. And so it's all wrapped up in a pretty little bow and it's great because AWS is the thing that I love about AWS is the fact that they charge you for the usage that you use and not like a, a, a big fee just at upfront or anything like that. Like you pay for what you're using. So if you need more computing power, just pay a little bit more and you'll have the computing power. If you don't need that, then you can pay less. And you only pay for when the server's on. So during testing and things, when you turn off certain testing uh, servers, when you're done testing things, then you just don't have to pay for them anymore. So it's it's super handy. Yeah, for sure. Now, you did mention that you kind of got hung up on things like S3 and, and Lambdas, others not being used in this project then, but you kind of just you know had to use them at some point in the past. Yeah, exactly. This project is mainly just on an EC2 instance and uh, with Route 53, but uh, I have used Lambdas in the past, yeah. Okay. So this EC2 instance, do you know what the specs are for it? Like, which type of instance is it? 
Yeah, it's actually just a T2 micro. So a minimal amount of computing power. I mean, I think they have smaller um, servers, but uh, with one virtual uh, CPU, which is apparently really good. I, I had a professor tell me one time that virtual CPUs are actually better than real CPUs, but uh, I didn't listen too much about how that was. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole bunch of research on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just running on a T2 micro, it, it keeps the costs really low and the performance has never been an issue. So it's great. Right. So now on that T2 micro, I remember in the past, AWS had this one, I guess, rule or constraints around that type of instance where it had the concept of like CPU credits where, you know, if you're doing a lot of work and the CPU is going, then you're going to eat up those CPU credits. And when you hit the maximum of that, then you get completely throttled to the point where, you know, if you were getting decent traffic on your site, your site would basically come to a crawl. Uh, have you looked into that? Is that something that you've had to deal with or no? Yeah. So being that the site's only been up for about a month now, um, we haven't come across that problem. However, yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind and, and to keep monitoring. And I don't know what the traffic is like. The, the client has been monitoring that. Um, however, he did give me a report about a week after we launched it that we had about 250 users come to the site per day. And so that's that's not insane, but it's not insignificant. So if it does climb a lot, um, we would definitely look at, at upgrading that server instance. And that's, again, another beautiful thing that AWS has done is it's so simple to upgrade your server architecture and move to something else. They've made that process very easy. And so it, it helps when you run into issues like that. So going back to the EC2 instance, what distro did you use in the end? We ended up using um, Ubuntu 18.04, I believe. And that was mainly just because I have a lot of experience with Linux-based systems and deploying on Linux systems. So I wasn't going to mess around and use um, one of Amazon's ones because they're they're good. They have some really good things installed. However, I've had issues in the past trying to set up an Apache um, instance running on uh, one of their AWS Amazon instances. They I don't know what it was, but again, it's one of those things where it leaves a sour taste in your mouth. So you don't try it again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now, as for the server, is this something that I guess you just set up by hand then, just following tutorials, running commands, or did you use any type of configuration management tools like Ansible? No, actually, I've never used a, a configuration tool to do it. I've always wanted to. However, when it comes down to actually setting these sorts of things up, I always seem to be in such a rush. Like, like I wanted to get this project up and running, and then it came down to production, and we had set a contract, and, and so I had about seven days left to do it. And so I was like, as much as I want to learn a new tool, I really just want to get this out there and working and make sure because I knew I was going to run into issues of not having the correct Django libraries installed. So I knew I had to have that extra time to do it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to look into some of those tools. Yeah. So do you recall maybe offhand, you're not going to know like the whole list probably, but like, you know, what types of things did you have to install on that server, like library wise? Yeah, it was fairly straightforward. Um, it's running Django 3, so definitely had to install that. Um, Python 3 as well. I think it came with Python 3 installed, so I didn't really have to worry about that too much. And then just getting the, the libraries that I had used um, 
within the actual project installed. Yeah, I mean, that was the majority of it. And then using CertBot was uh, another tool that you had to install. Yeah, I think that was it. It was it was a fairly easy setup process. Um, the most difficult part of, of launching to production was really just getting the DNS set up correctly um, because this is only the second time in my career that I've ever touched DNS records. And so uh, when I was setting it up, I actually had to call a friend who is an expert in setting up DNS services and, and uh, get him to help me out with it. So <laughs> that was definitely a nightmare for me. Yeah, very cool, though, that you have that hotline to call upon. It's like, ah, what's the difference between like an A record and a C name? Yeah, for sure. It can be so confusing, especially when you're reading tutorials online. And, and it actually ended up being that one of the, the major issues that we were running into was that um, he was using a proxy and didn't even know it. <laughs> and so um, I was setting things up and I hadn't known of any you know terminal commands where you could check and see who is your DNS provider. Yeah, those are always fun times, especially like there's so many gotchas with DNS. Like even like if you're brand new to it, it's like, well, you know, sometimes you can't just change your record and then register an SSL cert like five minutes later because it could take an hour or even like, you know, 30 hours for that to propagate around to where the world can uh, see that change. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's also another thing that you have to be careful of when uh, discussing with a client is is telling them that, hey, you know, your project we agreed is going to be finished in three days. However, I've just updated your DNS records and it might take 24 to 48 hours to propagate, you know, just letting you know. And and I felt so strange telling my client that because I felt like I was almost trying to cop out and say, you know, I'm trying to get more time. Right. No, I think you made the right move there, right? I mean, it's like the reality of the situation. Even, you know, any developer would probably understand that type of thing, I think. Yeah, for sure. So it, it worked out in the end, and uh, we got it up and running with a few days to spare on the contract. So I was pretty happy. Yeah, very cool. Always nice when you, what's that term, like over-deliver something something. It's like you did something better than you thought you would do. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm glad that it worked out that way, because I was, I was pretty scared when I had to start doing the DNS record updating, and my first couple of attempts did nothing. And I was like, uh, I have no idea what to do next. <laughs> yep. So going back to maybe your deploy process, we didn't really go over that yet. Do you want to walk us through what it's like to, you know, hack around on the application, uh, push it up somewhere, and then like how does it end up getting into production step by step? Yeah. So at this point, we have a very, very simple, old school way of pushing to production. And there's two main reasons for that. So first of all, the, the process is really just a git push and a git pull. So any changes that I make locally, I test them out locally, I push it up, and then I'll SSH into the server, pull it down, give it a quick test, and then we're off to the races. And so that is for two reasons. One is my client likes to use the git UI to do his updates. So if he's adding to a course or he wants to change some CSS or a little bit of HTML, anything like that, he'll do it in the website and then he'll just push to production. And so it makes it very simple for him because he can just make changes right on the master branch. If he's changing something that is very simple, like a number, you know, a price to a course, something like that, he can do it in the admin page, he can do it right on the banner page, anything like that, and he doesn't have to do anything to actually 
push that and like get it through a pipeline um, because most of the time he's making simple static changes. We didn't want to worry too much about setting up a huge pipeline, adding in unit testing or adding in any, any kind of testing when the changes that are going to be made kind of quote unquote on the fly are going to be static changes. Right. Now, earlier when you said push it up, are you pushing it like directly to the EC2 instance or like onto GitHub or somewhere else? Yeah, we'll be pushing it straight to GitHub. Okay. So when he pushes things like to make one of those non-tested quick changes, he's actually just pushing it to GitHub. And then does he just SSH into the server and pull it down then? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it makes it makes it very simple um, in order to just make static changes. And then as well as sometimes when you make static changes like that, you always have to restart Apache to, to start to see them. Right. So do you recall maybe like how much downtime there is every time you need to restart Apache for the changes to take effect? Uh, the last couple of times that we've made changes and we've had to restart Apache, the downtime is like a couple of minutes. So it's nothing to worry about at this time, um, especially because a lot of his changes are done. Like he'll he'll work around that schedule. If he knows that he's going to make a change, he'll do it later at night when there's a lot less traffic on the site or something like that. Right. Now, honestly, a couple of minutes sounds a little high to me. Is that because like you're doing things like running you know, like a pip install and a collect static and like a DB migrate and then all of that stuff like while the server is down? It really depends. So a lot of the times when it's just a single, like a tiny little change, like a spelling mistake or something like that that's appearing on the page, it'll be a few seconds. However, if we do a database backup or something like that, then we want to do that during the downtime. Um, we do want to do collect statuses or statics every once in a while. Um, and so it's like, a few times there's been a couple minutes downtime. However, most of the time it's really short. Okay. Now, how do you guys deal with like managing secrets, like API keys for Stripe? Do you have that just commit to version control or do you deal with like environment variables or something else? Yeah. So that that's actually one huge mistake that I find a lot of new developers make is you never want to have your API keys in your version control. I've made that mistake before when I worked at a co-op term and I was ridiculed. <laughs> and so it's one of the mistakes that you really only ever make once. Um, and yeah, so environment variables are definitely a good option for that. I have the the API keys in a file on the server um, and it's in a directory like deep inside the server. And so we read from that file once when the Django project is started up and it's stored in the project. Um, and Django actually does a decent job of allowing you to use secrets um, and Django actually produces its own secret key um, that it uses itself in order to hash and salt passwords and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's really impressive. Nice. Yeah. I kind of like double fist pumped it to see that you don't have them just sitting there, you know, up on GitHub. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've made that mistake once before I will admit, and it was at a, a pretty public company that I worked at and uh, it did not go over well. <laughs> But uh, as for this secret file, though, how do you update it in the end? Like, does he just SSH in and, like, open up Nano or Vim or something and just make, like, an inline edit? Or do you transfer it as, like, part of, like, a deploy script or something like that? Right now, we haven't come across the, the, the problem of having to update it. So we really don't have anything in place for that. I think if we had to update it right now on the fly, then, yeah, it would really just be... SSH in and, and Nano or Vim and get in there and change it. But so far, we haven't had that problem. So hopefully we don't. 
So going on to planning for disasters or unexpected events, have you done anything for that? Like you mentioned maybe doing a database backup when the server is down. Do you have that happening like in the background, like every day or some other interval? At this point, we don't. Um, I think that's definitely the next top priority. Like, again, I mean, it's a it's an interesting balance between what the client wants and what the developer thinks is necessary. You know what I mean? I think it's important to have database backups. I think it's important to have uh, CI, CD pipelines. However, it's the client's money and the client's time, right? So if they don't see the value in that, then it's not going to happen. So I think getting a database backup is going to be really important, especially once you start getting more and more people coming to the site, more and more people signing up to the site. Um, every new user makes that database backup you know, five, 10 times more important. Um, and so I think the next big thing to add is going to be those automated backups. I don't know if nightly would be uh, something that needs to be done, especially while the traffic is low. If you're getting, you know, thousands of signups per day, then then definitely it's worth doing a nightly backup. I think if we were to do it like every week or maybe once a month or something like that, then uh, that would be a good opportunity. Right now, potentially like other things that you might want to back up, like if he is uploading things through the admin UI, like those files that he uploads, do you have those backed up somewhere or no? Yeah. So actually currently the files are backed up. Um, we have two copies of the files. However, the biggest problem is they're on the same server. <laughs> so it's kind of a useless backup. However, the, the whole reason for that was if we make a hot fix, and for some reason, the markdown gets messed up and it then no longer renders properly. We have a backup to render properly on the public page. So that was the point of having that backup file. However, that is a really good point. And I think it would be super simple to add in, you know, three, four lines of code to when he uploads a new file to back that up to an S3 bucket or something like that. And then we could update those records every week or month or something like that. And that way we have backups. So that's a really good idea. Okay. Yeah. The S3 way is definitely uh, a really useful thing. Like you can even put your database backups there as well. If you ever did that later. Yeah, absolutely. S3 is a really powerful tool. I'm Like I said before, it's, it's really a bucket that you can throw anything you want into. So it's definitely a great place to store backups. Right. So now still on the topic here of like disasters and, you know, bad things happening. Do you have any like alerts and, and things like that set up to where, you know, if maybe the CPU gets too high on the server, does anybody get emailed like before the server crashes? Right now it's all set up to just default stuff. Um, so I think default uh, with AWS is if you have something like that, like a meltdown, um, then the owner will get emailed. So that's not me. Um, however, we do have some logging in the site where if things go down, if we can't connect to Stripe, um, all of those sorts of problems, then we'll get emails and things. So there's two different things to worry about there. One is the server, and then the other is the actual website itself and the services that we use. So yeah, I mean, I'd like to add in a lot more and, and logging is so important and, and being able to follow those metrics of how often we're getting those alerts or pages aren't being found for some reason. So it's definitely something I want to add in the future. Right. There are like 
free third-party services like Uptime Robot or something like that, where you know they'll just ping your site every five minutes for free, and if it goes down, someone gets an email. It's kind of like a low-hanging fruit to set up, maybe. Yeah, that's a really great idea. I've never even thought of that. Yeah. So now when it comes to like things like errors, though, like an actual like 500 happens on the server, does he get emailed like a stack trace or no? Not at the moment, no. It, it, right now, I think the, the only check that we have in place is if we can't communicate with Stripe. Okay. Actually, speaking of emails, we didn't really talk about this one. Does this application do that? I mean, I would guess you would have to send like password resets and invoices and stuff like that or no? Yeah, and that's all done through um, Amazon's emailing service as well. So that I guess that is another cloud service that I'm using. Right, Amazon SES, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Cool. So was the experience with that good so far, like delivery rates, or is that something you're just not keeping tabs on? Yeah, so Amazon SES is interesting because it has a limit, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I want to say it's 200, and it, it, that's a limit for the day. So you can't send more than 200 emails in a day, and the, the reason they added that limit was because AWS clients were sending out more than 200 emails in a day, and other email domains were actually flagging that company for being spam. And so Amazon figured this out and said, okay, we're going to add a limit to that. If you need more than that, you have to apply. And I'm not really sure how the logistics of that go. If you apply to send more than 200 emails in a day, how they get around the fact that you're going to get flagged for spam, I'm not too sure. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's brilliant the way that they did it. However, it's kind of a pain because you have this limit of 200 that you always have to think about if you're going to have a lot of people on your site signing up or you're going to have a lot of people changing their passwords in the same day, like whatever the case may be. If you get near that limit, that's kind of a scary thing. You don't want somebody to try and reset their password and not get an email. Yeah, or even worse, like, you know, the course owner sends out an email to all of his potential customers and, you know, so many people want to sign up, but they don't get like the notification because the email failed. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's great because SES is so cheap to use. However, that limit is kind of daunting and, and you really have to keep it in the back of your mind where if your site does get up to enough users per day, you really have to worry about it and you'll have to apply for more emails. Right. On the bright side, applying for a higher limit is very, very straightforward unless they changed it recently. So like it just comes down to filling out a form basically like you know, what are you using this site for? Like, how many emails do you think you need? And, uh, you know, like they bumped mine up to 50,000 a day and I don't go anywhere, anywhere, anywhere near that. But like they took me from that 200 limit to that just by me spending like, I don't know, five or 10 minutes filling out a form. And it happened like on its own within like a couple of days. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It's great to know that it's an automated ish. It sounds like process um and not like somebody's going to review this and get back to you in a month because if you hit that limit you need it to happen quickly <laughs> right if i it was so long ago since i did it like 5 or 6 years ago but i think it is probably human reviewed because you do need to like include your domain name that you're going to be sending emails from so probably someone just goes over the forum checks out your site does it look, look spammy or not and if it looks good then they just okay it without like that much thought if i were to guess yeah, that's great. As long as it's not like an intense process, you know, No, it's something that's very needed. So yeah, for sure. So what would you say are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building the site? Honestly, I, I think it's really just come down to the fact that learning this web framework has really, you know, jump started my 
ambition and, and emphasis on how important it is to know various tools that will help you to do something that has been around for so long, you know, web development. If you want to be a web developer, I highly recommend learning a web framework. A few of them would be good. Um, it's just such a powerful tool for getting you off the ground quickly. And, and a lot of the times you don't want to spend a whole you know, day or two days trying to figure out how to hash and salt a password. And, you know, you don't want to use libraries that seem easy, but might not be secure enough. And so web frameworks can take a lot of that work away from you. And really, my biggest thing would be, you know, get out there and learn some of these tools. If you've heard a tool that Nick and I have talked about during this podcast that you don't really know a lot about, it might be worth just watching a few YouTube videos and, and learning about it. And if it's something that you think you could use in your next project, then just dive in and, and get started on it. Yeah, that is very good advice, especially about learning more than one framework, because, you know, even if you are primarily going to work with Django, there's really no harm in spending a weekend or two going over, like, what do they do in Laravel? What do they do in Rails? And then kind of like, kind of figure out what they do, like enough just to know what's going on and then be like, ah, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Like maybe I can apply that back to Django. So it's like you're not learning them in depth to like make entire like, you know, SaaS apps with them, but just enough to like keep a pulse on what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing, like don't shy away just because it, it's written in a language that you don't know because, you know, I didn't know Python super well. I knew Python as a scripting language. I've never created a class or anything like that in Python before. I mainly used it to do scripting. And so going into something like Django where it's in Python and you you have to understand classes and object-oriented programming and all of that sort of stuff, I was like, well, I've never done that with Python before, so that makes me really nervous. But don't worry about it. I mean, it's something you'll pick up along the way and and YouTube is super helpful and and you know, Google and it's great. So it's it's paid off in the end. And, you know, I was able to deliver this project and meet deadlines that I would have never been able to meet without learning a new framework. Very cool. Yeah. I don't know Django well enough to maybe quote their tagline, but isn't it something like, it's like made for perfectionists who have deadlines. Like, isn't it very close to that? <laughs> yeah. I know that they do talk a lot about being able to get a project off the ground quickly and, and avoiding all of that bogging you down in the beginning because I, I think that when you get bogged down in the beginning by trying to get your project started, you're so much less likely to complete it. Yeah, for sure. So very good stuff. Dalton, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, it was great to be here. And, and I really appreciate the offer of coming on the show. And, and thanks for listening, everybody. Yep. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. You can find me on GitHub at uh, StormBandit, um, no spaces. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.